Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Hey friends, welcome to episode 48. We are halfway through 2021 and we just wrapped up a really great power series here on the podcast. If you are feeling like you want to get into grant writing and you're just not sure where to even start, go back and listen through those episodes. It's 43 through 46. Just go straight through and you can download the workbook to go along with that at teresahuff.com slash fast focus to help you through that. Now and then on the podcast, I like to do a nonprofit spotlight where I interview a nonprofit leader and kind of showcase the work they're doing in the community. It's partly to help spread the word about their mission and their efforts to generate support for them, but also to give you all ideas of ways you could do fundraisers, ways you could structure your program to make a bigger impact in the community, ways to get your board involved so that you can kind of see what else is going on out there and what's happening so that whether you are a grant writer or a nonprofit leader, you can better advise on your specific situation and on the nonprofits that you work with. If you're an employee, you can advise internally. And if you are a consultant, then you can work with your clients in a better capacity and just be better informed with that. I know that kind of helps me see what others are doing and get ideas of how we can connect the dots for clients and help them generate more support and build their capacity as well. Other episodes like this that I've done were back in episode 13 when we talked about the Global Orphan Project, and they are doing some incredible work, especially helping kids in foster care and families to really strengthen families and help adults be able to sustain a living wage. Episode 23, I talked with the Saber Life Foundation and how they are changing lives through service dogs. In episode 27, Dr. Jonathan Krauss had some amazing advice for us about nonprofit leadership. So make sure you hear him and his words of wisdom. Then we got into nonprofit sustainability when I interviewed my client, Ashley McMichael, in episode 37. I always love talking with her, and she is such an energetic, innovative person. Then in episode 39, I talked with another client, Greg Cohen, of how their real estate company has a nonprofit arm, and they are making a huge impact with that in their community. They have involved their whole team in this nonprofit work. They've gotten the entire business involved, all their partners and people in the community, and they have actually built and given a home to a wounded warrior. And they've done that three times so far, and they're continuing to do that each year, and it's really incredible. So make sure you go back and check out those episodes if you haven't yet. And all of these will be linked in the show notes in case you want to go back and reference any of them and listen to their stories. 
It's been a while since we've done one of those, so I wanted to have another nonprofit spotlight today. And this one is so cool. The story and just the undertaking that they're doing is incredible. You're going to enjoy hearing about this. I'm talking with Rodney Olson. He is from Australia, so his accent, as you'll hear, is incredibly cool. He is with Compassion Australia. And in September of 2021, they are preparing to ride across Australia, coast to coast. And so he's going to share with us the reasoning behind that and the story and how that is generating awareness and support for the need there. He also shares how they're really tapping into volunteers and resources in local communities. And it's interesting how they are doing that and how they're preparing their volunteers and kind of this whole structure that they have to prepare. Follow along in their Facebook group to see the steps that they're going through and the things they're doing and kind of generating excitement and training and all the different aspects that go into that really interesting story. So listen in. I hope you enjoy this today and go check out all these show links because there is some great stuff in here. All right. Enjoy the show. Rodney, welcome to the show. This is such a cool story that I'm excited to share today. Before we get started, tell us a random fact about yourself. A random fact about me is that I didn't learn to ride a bicycle till I was 16 years of age. And that's going to sound even more interesting once we get into the interview. Oh, that is interesting. Okay, make a note of that, everybody, because yeah, that's quite ironic. <laughs> Tell us about your journey and what you're doing now and how you got to this point. So I'm working for an organization called Compassion Australia, and we're part of an international organization uh, Compassion International, where we are seeking to release children from poverty around the world and currently working with around 2 million children. And so we're, we're making a big difference in their lives. It's through child sponsorship. So people get the opportunity to sponsor a child, to interact with them, to be able to, to write letters backwards and forwards and to see a, a real transformation happen in their life. And I guess the, the reason I got involved is I used to work in radio many years ago, and I was given the opportunity to go to Haiti to see the work of Compassion. And the idea was that I would come back to Australia, where I live, and talk about what Compassion is doing on the radio to give people an opportunity to support the mission of Compassion. So the idea was we'd go across there. I thought it would be a big adventure, and I was up for an adventure. So I said, yeah, I'll go. And I'd heard of Compassion and thought, yeah, they seem to do some good stuff. So I'll go along for the ride. But really, it's an adventure. And I went and I guess I wasn't really prepared for, for what I saw, for the transformation that was happening in children's lives, for the effect that it was having on them and to see these children who were coming from the depths of poverty. These are children uh, who are living in extreme poverty and the change that it was making in their lives and in their families' lives and in the wider community. So I saw that in 2008, came back and continued my radio job for the next five years, uh, but was always looking for opportunities to, to share about compassion in their work wherever I could on the radio. And then I saw a job advertised with compassion and I just thought, I've, I've got to do that. I've got to speak out on behalf of children. I mean, the the trip to Haiti was eventful, let's say, in, in various ways because of the timing of it. And that's a long ways from home for you to travel 
from Australia to Haiti. Yeah, it was a very long way to travel there. And the interesting thing is, because it was 2008, and that was around the time of the global financial crisis, and it meant the global food crisis, the people there in Haiti weren't able to feed their families. And so we were meant to be there for about a week, but we realized very quickly that it was a dangerous place to be. And we we had to get out within 48 hours. But that was, I guess, the catalyst for me thinking I need to do more to speak out on behalf of these people because we saw people rioting in the streets because they said we need to feed our families. At the time, they were mixing dirt together with oil and sugar and water and drying it out to make mud cakes and feeding that to their children because that's the only thing they could put in their stomachs. And that's just unacceptable. We, We can't imagine that happening. And yet that's what they were doing. They would describe at the time the hunger that they felt as like battery acid or like bleach in their stomachs. It was just so hard for them. And I imagine Like for me as a parent, not being able to put food on the table for my family, not being able to to feed my kids, to be able to provide food for my wife, I just, I don't know what I'd do. And I'd probably end up doing similar things to what these people were doing, which was taking to the streets. They were looting stores where they could. They were making barricades out of tires and setting them alight just to say, please help. Something needs to be done. Wow. And just seeing that firsthand is so powerful because a lot of times that is the catalyst of really understanding the need that deeply. I mean, we see it on the news, we hear it on the radio, but to actually be there and see them doing that just to give food is powerful. Yeah. And the trip to the airport, when we decided we've got to get out of here, the people running the trip on behalf of Compassion had discussions and said, look, we need to get you out of here. It is not safe. But as we tried to travel to the airport uh, first thing in the morning to try and get in before any more action was was happening on the streets, very quickly we found out that there was going to be more rioting and that the streets that we needed to go down to get to the airport were blocked off. And we went down smaller and smaller streets and were surrounded by more and more people who were hungry. And it's interesting that we came to one point where we were surrounded by people and the the vehicles we were in just could not go forward. Um, We were in two four-wheel drives. There were four radio announcers from Australia who had travelled to Haiti to, to capture what was going on as far as Compassion's work, not expecting this to happen. So we had these two four-wheel drives. We were surrounded. There was someone there in the crowd with an iron bar trying to incite the crowd to overthrow our vehicles to see what they could find uh, so that they could perhaps feed their families with, with any money that we might have. But then, and this was translated back to us through one of the people in the vehicle that was driving us, someone pointed to the sticker on the side of the car and said, stop look, they're from compassion. They help our children, let them go. And that's probably the only reason that I'm still alive today, that we were able to to get going. We moved and the, the road ahead was still very, very slow. And it wasn't until one of the locals who was trying to help us get through the crowds and, and he was walking in front of the vehicles trying to make a way. Finally, we turned a corner and came to a crew cab four-wheel drive, a pickup, And there were people on the back that were holding weapons. And thankfully, they were also in police vests. 
And one of the people with us at the time was originally from Haiti. He got out of the vehicle and walked very slowly toward them with his hands in the air uh, to show that he wasn't carrying any weapons. And he let them know what the situation was. And we had an armed escort to the airport. And if we hadn't have had that, if we hadn't have come across those police at that time, I don't know that we would have ever made it out of the country. And so that was my introduction to Compassion's work. And as we took off, as we headed down the runway, I was looking out across Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, and seeing fires with smoke rising into the air with all those barricades and this really incongruous image of some children playing soccer in the grass beside the, the runway. And there was a mix of emotions for me because as we took off, there's this sense of, ah, I'm safe. And at the same time, I realized that there was eight or nine million people living in Haiti that would never be able to afford a ticket out of there, that this was their lot. And I decided then I needed to speak out on behalf of those people who had no way of turning things around for themselves. I imagine you left feeling like there was a lot of work yet unfinished. That's right. There's certainly always a lot of work to be done, but we know that if we can start to help people, we can start making a difference. And in fact, it is interesting that over many decades that the figures of those left in extreme poverty have been going down. The global poverty rate has been diminishing for quite some time. The sad fact right now is that because of the pandemic, the World Bank estimates that this year alone, around 150 million people will be forced into extreme poverty. And of course, there's the domino effect of other people who have been living okay, and they're going to be pushed into poverty, not extreme poverty, but poverty. And so we're, we're seeing what is going to take for us in the West a number of years to get over the after effects of COVID-19 with the economic downturn that we've had with businesses shutting, with people losing work. That's going to take years to get over, and we don't want to diminish that. But we do have to stop and realise that for those in developing nations, it's actually going to take them decades because those of us in, in Western nations where we have those safety nets, where the government is able to, to come in and say, look, we are going to prop up business. We are going to hand out some, some dollars to make sure that the economy keeps flowing. And we have the ability to do that and people out of work, there is opportunity for some sort of welfare. In many of these countries in which we're working, if you don't work, you don't get paid. And if you don't get paid, you don't eat. And so many of these places where people have been told you're now in lockdown, you can't go out, you can't work, that means you can't provide for your family. And so that takes me back to that original time in Haiti, where there were families that could not be fed simply because they didn't have the means. That time, it was the, the global food crisis. At the moment, it's this pandemic. So they can stay locked up and avoid contracting COVID-19, or they can go out and try and get some work and maybe make some money, but they're really at the mercy of this awful disease. It's a no-win situation for them. Very much, very much, yes. Well, God obviously had more work for you to do yes. <laughs> by getting you out of Haiti and saying, okay, <laughs> I got your attention, now get to work. 
So that's exactly what you've been doing. So what do you do day to day now? What does that look like as far as your work behind the scenes? Well, Compassion is a Christian organization, and mostly we're working with local churches because that's how we work in the field countries. We actually partner with local churches because we want it to be local people that are bringing the solutions. So we're resourcing them to be able to help with the situations that they find themselves in there. So they know the local issues, they know the children and the families that we are serving, and so they're able to provide the best solutions. But we do the same in various countries, like in in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia, what we call our partner countries. There are 12 partner countries. We visit churches, we let them know this is the need that is happening at the moment. This is the opportunity that you have to sponsor a child or to give a gift. And so a lot of the time, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm visiting with church leaders and pastors to let them know what compassion is all about and to ask for the opportunity to go to their church, to be able to, to talk to their congregations and give them the opportunity to partner with compassion to release children from poverty. So that's a lot of what I'm doing, talking to pastors, speaking in churches on on weekends, as well as running all sorts of different events, just to try and get the word out there to raise awareness and to raise funds. So you're kind of the voice of the operation. Yeah, one of the frontline staff. So for instance, here I'm living in Perth in Western Australia. Uh, We have a a number of people that are are doing that and we have people dotted all around the country that are doing that in various church networks across the country. That's really a good way to tap into those resources on the front lines of, like you said, they know the community, they know the local needs there. You couldn't get into each of those yourselves, you'd have to have so many staff. But by doing that, you can really multiply your impact. And the impact is multiplied once we get to the field. Those of us that are part of churches in the Western world know that generally a church will perhaps employ one or two staff or three or four, depending on the size of the church. But most of the church work would not get done if it weren't for the army of volunteers, the people that sit in the pews, but also are on a roster to, to help out with various things that happen and to run various ministries. And it's the same thing, the way that we work in the field, that there are a few people that are employed to run the Compassion Project in that local church. But there are many, many people who say, I want to volunteer my time. So they are highly trained volunteers. We make sure that all the volunteers are trained in in child safety issues, as well as the, the sorts of things that they're teaching the children, but they're volunteers. So it means that the dollar is maximized once it gets to those field countries, that it is a, the local church. Uh, so a few people paid at a local wage, not expats that head across and, and still expect an expat wage. It's local people that are being paid a local wage. And I should say that most of the, the people that are helping in those situations are not much better off than the children that we serve. So they really do know the issues. I remember on a particular visit then when I was in one of the countries where we serve and one of the local workers from the local church was taking us to visit some of the children that they served in their homes. And as we passed by a particular home, which was certainly not flash, it was still in that area of poverty, they, they pointed proudly and said, that's my home. And and we started to realize that that is the situation, that these people, perhaps in poverty themselves, but they're reaching out to those who are in extreme poverty in their area. That's really powerful. No matter what your situation, you can always help someone else. Certainly, yes. 
you mentioned that you coordinate a lot of events and things, and there's an upcoming adventure that I really want to highlight today that if you want to jump in and tell us about that, this is such a cool undertaking that you've got coming up. It's a very cool undertaking, but it's going to take a lot of work, I can assure you. It's, <laughs> yes, uh, it it's called Ride for Compassion Coast to Coast. And so we're going to be riding bicycles from one side of Australia to the other. That's around 4,200 kilometres. So from one, one side of the country to the other. So we will start in September. Uh, on September the 18th, there'll be a group of around 30 cyclists and, and we'll start at a beach in Perth where we'll take our bikes down to the water and dip their tyres in the water so that we can say, yes, we've been all the way from one coast to the other. And then we'll get on our bicycles and we'll average over 150 kilometres a day, which is a little under 100 miles. So that's what we'll be doing on an average day. But there will be some days that will be up around 200 kilometres, so over 100 miles on those days. Downhill. It would be nice if it was. So most <laughs> most of the middle of Australia is flat. So we start out on the first couple of days, there are a few hills, but nothing too major once we've trained for them. The last three days of the ride, very, very hilly indeed. So we're, we're going through a mountain range there. Uh, but hopefully we'll have enough kilometres in our legs by then to be able to, to do that. But the, the middle of Australia is quite flat. And so we'll be enjoying those days on the on the flat surfaces as we go along. So 28 riding days, five rest days, so 33 days in all to go from one side of the country to the other. Wow. So just over a month. And what are the roads like that you'll be traveling on? They're all paved roads, but sometimes they're just a little bit rough. So once we leave the metropolitan area, it's not the smooth tarmac that we're used to. Oftentimes there is a a lumpier aggregate uh, that they use on the roads. And, and that's mainly because people are traveling at higher speeds. They want there to be a greater opportunity for grip on those roads, for cars and for trucks that are traveling at that sort of speed. So we understand that. But it does mean that for weeks on end, we are riding our bicycles across this sort of surface. And so it is quite jarring. We have heard of people in the past that have ended up with nerve damage within their hands. So we need to be careful of the way that we're holding onto those handlebars and, and changing our grip quite regularly to avoid that sort of nerve damage. Uh, so there's the, the the roads that can be rough. There's also passing traffic. And of course, that road that we use, there is that one road that goes from west to east and east to west. And so that's where a lot of semi-trailers are going backwards and forwards to take stock for shops backwards and forwards across the country. And so there's quite a lot of truck traffic there as well that we have to deal with. And uh, when you compare the size of a bicycle to a semi-trailer or, or a road train, so they're like a semi-trailer with an extra trailer on the back, we're up against some very large vehicles. That's just incredible. I mean, I'm doing good to ride around the block a couple of times. I can't imagine going across <laughs> the whole country. <laughs> it is rather remarkable. And, and we always find that there are 
two sorts of people that will take on a ride like this. First of all, you have people who are very keen cyclists and they say, this is a bucket list thing for me to ride all the way across the country. This is something that I've always wanted to do. It's it's something I've wanted to achieve. And they say, and to do it for a good cause, that's something that I think is even better. And so they'll join the ride for that. But then there are other people who say, you know what, I've never really been a cyclist, but I believe in this cause so much and I want to affect change for these children so much that I'm prepared to train and make my body ready to be able to cycle across. The interesting thing is that within the first couple of weeks, and I've actually asked the question of groups in the past when we've been doing these sorts of rides is, uh, okay, who joined the ride specifically because it was about the bike? It was mainly about the bike. And you'll get about half the hands go up. Who is here mainly for the cause and the other half of the hands will go up. And then you say, and who still is getting on their bike day after day, simply for the children, for the cause. And that's generally where every hand goes up. Because once you've got over the idea of, yes, this is a nice idea to go on this bike ride. It's a bucket list thing. It's something I want to achieve personally. Once they start to personalize the plight of the children that we're serving, it becomes all about them. They start to realize that there is something bigger than them just achieving a personal goal. And that's true in really any nonprofit work. It becomes about the bigger why. And in order to keep going and stay motivated, you have to really internalize that why and know what that is and make that a part of your core purpose for doing the work. And that's what keeps your team moving is what keeps you moving internally. That's really important. Every morning before we set off, we read the story of a child, the sort of child that is going to benefit from the work that we're doing by pedaling day after day. And so right before we jump on our bikes, we read that story and we say together that for it is for this child and we name them and for children like them, And then we all together say that today we ride. And so right at the start of every day, we have that why at the top of our mind. And and it can be a little bit difficult starting to ride in the first kilometer or so with tears in our eyes. But that is often the case when we hear the plight of some of these children that we have the opportunity and the honor to serve, then those stories lodge deep within the heart. And so when we're having one of those tough days, whether it's hills or headwinds or rain or whatever the weather might bring to us, we can think back and say, yeah, but I'm not getting off my bike because I remember the story that we heard today about that child and the trials that they've been through. I have no right to complain. I am going to keep pushing forward. That's powerful. That speaks to the importance of storytelling and just telling one person's story can really be more impactful than spouting off statistics. If you were just to say, okay, remember this many children are in poverty today, we're going to help all of them, but you're telling one story and that's what brings tears to your eyes and gets them back on that bike every day. It's just sharing that one specific story that they can really visualize. I think there is that balance too, that, the statistics are important to, to share, to give the enormity of the problem. But if we don't personalize it, as you say, if we don't tell that that one story, then we're not able to really fully comprehend that. 
And we need to be able to fully comprehend that. And so that's what we do. And in the towns that we visited along the way, we generally stop in and, and where there are populated towns, which is most of the way, but there is a stretch right in the middle where there's only road houses that we drop into. But where there are population areas, then we'll drop in and it will generally be the local church community that will welcome us in. They'll give us a meal. They'll give us a place to, to sleep for the night. And often that's just in a hall in the, the church or, or somewhere like that, where we can put down blow-up mattresses and sleeping bags. So as you can tell, it's a very luxurious tour um, as we head across the country. But they'll give us a place that that we can rest our head for the night, but also a meal. And so we generally spend about half an hour or three quarters of an hour in a meeting with them just to say, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And each night we'll show them a video which gives them a visual representation of the the story of one child as well so that they can fully comprehend. That's why all these mad cyclists are out here in the middle of nowhere. You know, I think that really would help build your trust and relationships in the communities, in the local areas, because they see that you're putting this into action, that you care enough to go through all this and advocate for these kids, that you are really taking it several steps further to further the cause and to promote this. That's really what happens. People along the way, we find, get so emotional. We might even have just a very short interaction with people, but so often when we leave a town, people are in tears because they start to get an idea of what this is all about. And oftentimes, a lot of those townspeople who have been there for the evening meal the night before, and they've been able to provide us with the accommodation, they'll turn up to see us off in the morning. And so they're hearing those stories too that we share each day and they affect them as well. And that's when they decide, you know what, we, we've we helped to, to feed and to, to give a place to, to rest for all these cyclists but we can do more. And so often those people that have already been so generous with their time, uh, with their accommodation and with their food, also put their hands in their pockets and hand over donations to say, I I need to do more. That's really powerful. And that builds the community of support. They see that you already have other support and they want to become a part of that. They want to be a part of the story and a part of the solution. We found last time as well that as we went from town to town, because we we did this in 2018 and we're doing it again at the end of this year, as I say, in September and October. And what we found is each town that we went to, we would let people know, hey, you can follow along the progress on our Facebook group. And so we found more people would connect every night and they would want to follow us along and they would give comments because they remembered when we were in their town and they wanted to see this thing through to the end just as much as we did. And that's so cool that you have that now where people can follow along. Is Facebook the best way to follow? Yeah, Facebook is the best way for people to actually follow what's going at the time. So at the moment, our Facebook page has a number of posts from the last ride that we did, as well as some posts about what we're up to at the moment. It's There's not as much there, but certainly by the time the ride gets started, that'll be the best place. We do have a camera crew coming with us. Someone has donated the opportunity for us to have uh, three people as part of a camera crew to be able to 
to put together a documentary of the ride. And those documentary makers are very likely to be putting little snippets of video and some still shots up on the Facebook page day after day so that people can really follow our progress. They can see how far we've gone on our bikes. They'll also be able to see how many dollars have been raised and how many children have been sponsored through the efforts of us cyclists as we cross the country. That's so cool. And those visuals are so powerful to really see what it's like there and to see it firsthand, what you guys are going through, the excitement, the fatigue, I'm sure (laughs) that will set in and just to watch that journey. That's so neat. And what's the name of the Facebook page? So it is Ride for Compassion Coast to Coast. If people search that out, they'll be able to find it, Ride for Compassion Coast to Coast. And they just need to say, yep, I want to join this group. We'll let them in and they can be a part of seeing us ride across the country. What an incredible story. Before we wrap up, I know this has been quite a journey for you. So along the way, would you share a resource that has been especially meaningful for you? I guess a resource that that I have found very helpful over several years since I joined Compassion is a book by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickett. It's called When Helping Hurts. And it's a book that really goes to the heart of defining what poverty is, but it goes beyond that to say, how do we actually make sure that we're helping? How do we make sure that we're not just doing something that makes us feel good, but is actually going to have the effect that we want it to have of helping those who are living in poverty or in extreme poverty? And they make the point of, you know, over years of of youth groups, for instance, that have gone back to the same orphanage in, in a developing nation and they painted each year and and they're wanting to do the very best And so they do that year after year and they go home feeling really great. But what is the message that it sends to the people in that town? It sends them the message that, you know what, you don't have the resources, you don't have the ability to get yourself out of the situation you're in. And you know what, you're so, so bad at this that you don't even know how to paint your own building. And we don't want to be giving that sort of uh, understanding to people who are living in poverty. They are people that are that have their own resources, that have their own way to be able to be effective in bringing their own solution. We want to resource them to be able to do what they can do, to give them the the tools that they need to be able to do what is required. And so that book, When Helping Hurts, is a great book if you want to get a good understanding of, am I really helping myself to feel better or am I making a real difference when I'm reaching out to those living in poverty? Ouch, that is a painful question. (laughs) But if you really stop to consider it, that's true. So good. So tell us, where can we find you online? You mentioned the Facebook group, but if someone wants to connect to learn more or even to become a part of this sponsorship and making this happen to make a difference. The easiest place to find us is just go to rideforcompassion.com. If people go to rideforcompassion.com, they'll be able to read a little bit more about the ride. They'll be able to scroll down. There's a button there that says donate. They can click on that and that will take them through to our fundraising page if they'd like to to give a donation. Also on rideforcompassion.com, they can scroll down and they'll find my email address there. So if they have any questions, if they'd like to know more about the ride from me or to get in touch, they can actually just scroll down and do that. So that's, I guess, a 
uh, a one-stop shop. If they'd like to know a little bit more about the ride is just rideforcompassion.com. Very good. I'll link to all that in the show notes to make sure people can easily click through. So such a cool story and we will be watching. I will be looking forward to seeing the updates for that and to see your journey as it goes through. And that's happening September, 2021. So in case anyone's listening before or after that, you can still go to that Facebook group to watch the progress and see how that goes. Absolutely. We'd love people to see what the riders are doing. And I I should mention as well, we've got about a dozen people that are driving in our support vehicles to make sure that we're looked after on the road and, and they're an essential part of what we do. So all in all, we'll end up with a team of just short of 50 people on the road for just over a month. It's it's going to be a, a huge effort. Wow. That's a big undertaking. And so I'm sure you are already starting to train and probably have been training for quite some time to get ready for this. That's right. All our riders have been out training for, for quite some time. Uh, many started even a couple of years ago when they heard that there was the possibility of the ride coming up. They started to, to get themselves in, in better shape. Others of us are sort of having a bit of a crash course in remembering what we need to do on a bicycle, but we're certainly riding a lot each week and we're just encouraging one another as well as that open Facebook group that I've mentioned. We have a, a closed group where we're just giving each other encouragement and and some some hints and tips on training and on nutrition and all those things that we need to take into account to ensure that the ride is everything that it can be. And that community support is so important from those of you actually on the ground doing it, but also the ones behind you that are supporting just the whole undertaking. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is one of those things that becomes much bigger than the group that is on the road. It, it's bigger than the riders. It's bigger than the support crew. As I've said to many groups, as we've dropped into communities along the way, they are very much a part of the team because what we need as riders to continue to do what we do day after day is good fuel. So those local communities that are providing us a meal, they're not just helping out a group that's going through, they're actually becoming part of the team. And so they're also affecting change for the children that we serve. And each part is so important. Even if it's just one meal, you couldn't survive without that meal. You need to sustain yourselves and to sustain your strength. So that one part is still very important. Absolutely. And and I love it, the the opportunity to go into a town and we find people that they tell us that they feel so humbled that we have decided to visit their town. And we're saying, no, 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 the, the honor is, is all ours because you have actually put together this amazing meal. And so there's this, this real connection that comes because we're just in awe of the job that they do in being able to especially in very small towns, to provide a meal for this huge group on the road and to provide places for us to sleep. We're just so thankful for that. And at the same time, they're incredibly thankful that we've decided to visit their town with this big ride and this big event. And so it's just this wonderful place where the, the two groups get together and, and, as I say, become part of the one team. That's such a good example of doing what you can where you are. Yeah, there are people that are never going to have the opportunity to to visit places that I've visited, such as you know the Philippines and Thailand and Rwanda, Ethiopia and, and Haiti and Dominican Republic, all these different places that I've had opportunity to visit people and, and to sit with people who are living in extreme poverty and to hear their story. But 
by providing a, a meal for some cyclists, they're actually making a big difference, a bigger difference than they will ever know. Yeah, to them, it's a small part. It's just a meal, but it's not. It's so much more than that. And we know that. And that's all a piece of the puzzle. And without some of those pieces, something would be missing. And it's such an encouragement for all of us in that when we hear about a good cause and we so often think, you know what, I can't do a lot, so I won't do anything. I think we're missing the point. When we hear about a good cause, whether we can afford to give $5 or to just make a meal or or whether we can give $5,000, that's that's just what we can do. We decide this is what I can afford at the moment. If it is making a meal, if it is giving that $5, then that's great. That's still part of the solution. We We need everyone to play their part. Yeah, and by declaring this thing, It's a big thing. You've made it public. You've thrown it down and said, we are doing this and you've committed to it and you've got all the support behind you to move forward with it. So it's like any big undertaking where you really have to go all in and do it and then just keep moving forward. Yeah. And we're looking forward to getting on the road and even more so to completing the journey, knowing that there will be thousands of children that are going to be affected through this that are going to have a better opportunity at life going forward because we've decided to do something we love, which is cycling. And even though there'll be painful days and hard days, we're still being able to get out and do something in in a country that we love and just seeing the, the countryside and an amazing experience, but knowing that it's going to make a huge difference for the children that we serve. Yeah. And what a great way to use something you love, a hobby, and really take it to make a huge impact. Oh, there are so many opportunities where we can use what we love, the things that we do day by day, and turn them into a way to make a difference for other people. Yep. And just recently, I talked about that, of what it really means to change the world. That's such a big statement, go change the world. But that can start with just a little thing. It can start with like you said, $5 or a meal. It starts small. It doesn't have to be overnight a huge thing. You do your small part. And if we all do that, then it really has a an exponential impact. It's the collective that makes the difference. When we all do the, the part that, that we can do, it, it is going to make a massive difference. Well, thank you for telling this story. This is so incredible, and I can't wait to watch the journey. We will be rooting for you and for the whole team. So make sure that you go sign up and join the Facebook group so that you can watch along because this is going to be so incredible. It's going to be fantastic, and I just want to say thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to to share about this. We know that there will be people right around the world that are watching on and that are going to be sending us encouragement through that Facebook group, and we just look forward to to being on the road and, and seeing what comes out of this. Yeah, and I hope everyone will help spread the word. If you know someone that might be interested, share this, share the group, invite them or share the podcast episode just to help spread the word and be a part of it. Absolutely. Thank you. Friends, if you are feeling like it is time to get involved in nonprofit work in some degree, whether in grant writing or some kind of nonprofit consulting or leadership, then the Fast Track to Grant Writer will help you prepare for that. You can focus on your plan and your skills so that you have the confidence and the competence to serve nonprofits well. If you haven't already, join us in the brand new LinkedIn community so that we can support each other. Go over to LinkedIn and search for Grant Writing Simplified. 
If this episode was helpful for you, would you please share it with a friend, help me spread the word, and let's serve our nonprofits together. All right, my friends, go change your world.